This week's episode of Screen Talk is brought to you by Vimeo. Vimeo has a bunch of amazing indie films you can watch on demand. I've recommended my favorites you can check out at vimeo.com slash IndieWire. If you're a filmmaker and want to sell your movie or series on Vimeo on demand, all you need is a pro account. You can set your own price, create promo codes, add bonus features, and there's that embeddable HD player with a purchase button, which means people can buy and watch your own films anywhere on the web. Vimeo only takes 10%, which is really the best in the business. Go to vimeo.com slash start selling and use a promo code ERIC20 for 20% off Vimeo Pro. This week I'm recommending Jean-Luc Godard's Goodbye to Language, and quite simply, there's nothing else like it. More than 50 years after Breathless, Godard is still finding ways to reinvent the cinematic wheel, and this dazzling essay film about fragmented communication and an adorable dog that chooses to escape it all will shake up your way of seeing the world. You don't have to watch it in 3D to get lost in this vivid universe of illusions and poetic asides. Just use the promo code ERIC20 to get a 20 percent discount on goodbye to language on vimeo and let me know what you think good evening hi welcome to the eleanor Bunin monroe film center my name is eugene hernandez from the film society of lincoln center um how many of you are attending the new york film festival for the first time right now raise your hand welcome Welcome, welcome. Join me in welcoming the hosts of the IndieWire podcast Screen Talk, Ann Thompson and Eric Cohn. I love Thank a good you, uh, Eugene. Eugene Hernandez intro. It was a sequel to the one he did for us at the Cannes Film Festival, so it's, it's always nice to set the stage that way and then see if we can live up to the potential he just set for us. But uh, yeah, it's great to see all these people here for, I guess this is our maybe our third live recording or something like that. And I like how all the kind of regular listeners are clustered together in this row here too. <laughs> you guys can meet us at the bar afterwards. Um, it, it, I, I love talking about film festivals while they're going on because it kind of feels like you're capturing something that in the process of its emergence into the world, even though all these movies already existed before the festival started. Somebody had to see them and choose to program them. But maybe we should start out by talking about what this festival is. I mean, why are we here? We were just in Toronto and watched a bunch of movies there. So why come to New York Film Festival and do it all over again? Well, we've been talking about this sort of building effect that occurs. And one example of that is today I was uh, looking at my Twitter feed and there were all these reactions on Carol, um, which finally screened here in New York. And and I was like, oh, they liked it, and oh, this person liked it, and this person is saying this about how good, um, you know, Kate Blanchett is. You know, and, and, and you need to see that amplification occur. You need to see all of that to know what's going to happen to some of these movies. And how is the walk going to be received is obviously a big question. Uh, well, let's try to answer it to the extent that we can. I mean, this is a movie that obviously had various different kinds of reactions, but I thought that it was a really good selection for the opening night of the festival in a lot of different ways. Even though you hated it? Well, <laughs> let me point out that I have not yet given it a grade. <laughs> I think I liked it a, l- a little bit less than you, but, uh, but I have respect for Robert Zemeckis as a filmmaker because consistently we see that this guy works in certain ways to, to remind us why we go see a big screen spectacle, and I think it delivers on that front. Totally. And that's what's really satisfying about it. And it also opens up a bigger conversation about some of the other movies here, like, say, Ridley Scott with The Martian. We haven't seen Bridge of Spies yet, but I would, I would assume that Steven Spielberg figures into that conversation we'll as well. We'll find out. And Steve Jobs, which we have seen, um, which we l- 
I liked very much. And if anyone has a chance to see Danny Boyle talk, you should, because he's incredibly entertaining, always smart, always funny, always worth listening to. Well, let's get back to the walk for a second. All right. <laughs> so the walk is all about the walk. That's what it's about, and that's what Zemeckis wanted to deliver. And the question is how well you like the rest of what's around it, because he totally gives you this visceral, almost terrifying, almost too intense, especially in IMAX 3D. Uh, he gives you the experience, and it was fun on opening night at Tavern on the Green to talk to Philippe Petit, who was the star, you know, absolutely, of that event, um, and, and have him say that somehow he believed that Zemeckis captured how he felt up well, there. I would assume that he would say that at this juncture, or else, you know, maybe he wouldn't go to the after party. I think the first way to start talking about this movie... Well, he didn't is say whether he liked the movie. Well, I mean, look at his Twitter feed. The, the first way to talk about Philippe Petit and this story is, is the first movie that came out, came out, which was Man on Wire, which I think does a much better job of kind of delving into the psychological specificity of what drives somebody to do that. And without that context, a lot of the drama involved in what this person is doing, I think, doesn't have substance. And so, in spite of the fact, I think people should see this movie in IMAX 3D because that climax is thrilling. I think it, it, it lacks something story-wise as a result of not getting to the heart of who this character was. There's a lot of paradoxical things going on in terms of how he behaved that the documentary does better. So what we're getting down to is that maybe we don't love the screenplay, but what Zemeckis was going for, clearly, was trying to set up this typical, heroic, anti-establishment, rebellious guy who was loved it when he was forbidden to do something and was bound to do it anyway. If he was about to get arrested for something, he was going to do it. Right, and I love that the movie at least attempts to put you inside his head. I was actually thinking about how on the convergent side of things here, they have these VR setups. You know, you see Oculus at like every film festival now. And I almost felt like this could have been the ideal Oculus experience. David Cronenberg already created one of these kind of ins installation type of things where you, you're like in his movies. I would love to have the walk be that It's a great idea. Although I tried to do one of those things, um, I think it was at South by Southwest, and it was a vertiginous cliff in the Alps, and you saw the other people clinging to the wall, you know, terrified, and I was one of them. I mean, it was really scary, and was I would never want to do that again. They didn't, like, three people throw up after the screening of the walk here? Was it something like that? It would have been nine or ten, ten if, they, if they had done the Oculus version. So this movie starts off the festival. Obviously, it's opening in theaters soon as well. What is it about the context here at New York Well, Film it's an festival? audience pleaser. I mean, this, this plays for um, the mainstream audience. I think it'll be a big hit. The question is, did it play for the critics? And I would suggest, based on the evidence of the many, many, many critics who were there at the after party, that it did not. And we're going to find that out when they all come out. Just in the New York Times alone, you can actually already see the divide that Manila Darius He liked it. Well, yeah, Tony did. Tony, Tony liked it, but he said the first half hour was unbearable. I think that's like a direct quote, more or less. So <laughs> mixed is, is perhaps more accurate. But what about awards? We have to talk about awards. I don't think that's an awards contender. I never thought it would be, honestly. Um, VFX, because the VFX are amazing. And also maybe production design, because they had to build all that stuff and create all that stuff. So that's pretty cool. 
But VFX counts for something. I mean, it's in in many ways these below the line awards get buried by our fixation on the bigger kind of narrative of the race, best picture, best director, actors, and so on and so forth. For a long time, we've been talking about Mad Max, and if VFX is the best way to drag Mad Max back into the, in the conversation, I mean, you know, I'm all for it. So is this sort of a threat to that movie in that respect? That was a lot of practical effects, and that's going to be an interesting question, is whether Mad Max gets in because of the old-fashioned, you know, put the road, the vehicles on the road kind of shooting and all the extreme uh, innovations of throwing the wires over and all the stuff that he did. He, I, I think he'll do very well. I think that movie will do very well, and I think that movie will do very well with all the technicals. But the question there is whether, you know, yes, George Miller gets nominated as Best Director, but does he get into... Uh, best picture. I, I, I mean, I'm curious to see how far the Academy can overcome its genre, anti-genre bias. And now we have The Martian, which screened here just a week and change after it screened in Toronto and also so did very well. So that's the same, similar question. And in that case, I actually think, uh, as opposed to The Walk, there's a chance that the critics like it enough and the movie is so well written. You know, Drew Goddard really delivered uh, an incredible adaptation of the bestseller, and I just think you can get writers, you can get editors, you can get cinematographers, you know, you, it, everything is, it's, it's, and the distance from gravity is enough so that it isn't being compared directly to gravity. That's what did Interstellar in, in a way. Not to mention the fact that this movie looks like it's going to be really, really successful outside of the kind of insular festival world. And a comeback for Matt Damon in that regard. It certainly didn't help that there's water apparently on Mars and the moon turned red last night. And You've been reading your Twitter feed. Everybody thinks it's a stunt, a marketing stunt. <laughs> anything is possible these days, really anything. But I, I'm not ruling it out. I'm not ruling it out. Conspiracy theories abound. I mean, we are talking about awards season after all. But the irony in all this stuff is in spite of all these big movies, I still hear everyone talking about a movie that's not at New York Film Festival this year. It's the best picture frontrunner, which is Spotlight. And that's one of the more curious aspects, I think, of this year's awards race is that it's not the movie that has the biggest scale or even necessarily the, the kind of most dynamic story compared to some of these other films here. And I wonder if there's anything out there that could possibly threaten kind of the reigning superiority of this movie in the Oscar race right now. Well, reigning superiority would be a strong statement. I think you have movies like Room and Spotlight, which are smaller movies, which are doing really well, but they have to do well all the way through. They have to do well at the box office. They have to do well at the end of the years with the 10 best lists. They have to get a lot of, of attention in order to really be where they need to be at the end. You know, Carol is coming out of, I, I think, out of New York is going to come out looking good and solid, not just a can art film, you know. And that's a great excuse to bring this back to New York Film Festival because that's a movie that, you know, premiered way earlier this year, kind of like last year when Boyhood showed up at Sundance, the Wes Anderson film opened at some point before the summertime, and it hasn't yet had that moment where it's, it's sort of come into the conversation. So I'm hoping that in some ways the platform that New York Film Festival is providing may bring this movie back up there to that spotlight level because I think it's a much stronger movie um, that uses its performances in, in a much more focused way. And uh, so, so that's sort of where, where my imaginary vote is going right now. But again, there are a few things we still haven't seen which we'll be digging into constantly. And when Steve Jobs shows up here next weekend, that will be a whole new opportunity to evaluate how people react to that movie. Absolutely right. 
I think that's going to be a very strong contender. Totally. And, and the, the, the Telluride screening was such an insular kind of a thing, too. So I th I'm really curious to see how you know this crowd takes it. So if any of you go, you'll have to let us know so we can sort of evaluate it at that point. But what else is there here at New York Film Festival that doesn't factor into awards? Because it's a, it's a big lineup, and there's lots of different stuff to dig into. What are you well, excited about? Well, we just came after the, the panel here. Uh, I think it was great that they um, participated, the New York Film Festival participated in the launch of Field of Vision, um, this new series of doc shorts that Laura Poitras and A.J. Schnack and Charlotte Cook are putting together uh, on The Intercept and uh, basically participated in a marketing launch. Uh, but it was fun last night to go and see uh, some of these shorts and, and they were a wide range of, of material uh, and pretty exciting. And we still don't know how those are going to get out there into the world. Right? Well, some of them are going to be uh, one week at a time released on The Intercept and uh, Laura herself is working on this movie, Asylum. It may be an episodic thing, or it may actually be a feature film. And they haven't decided. And that what's sort of fun about this is that they've just jumped off a cliff. You know, They really don't know how they're going to be selling all these movies and what platforms are going to be showing them and what the revenue streams are going to be. They're just doing them. And they've got this funder behind them, and they're going to get it done. And in some ways, that kind of experimentation is really key to finding any kind of success with the content people produce these days. I mean, unless you're a bigger movie with stars or another selling point, you have to innovate. Well, I like the idea that, that you can just decide not to be dependent on getting permission, you know, getting uh, assignments, raising funding, going through that whole process. It helps to have a backer, though. <laughs> but they're, these are emerging filmmakers. They're going out with just a camera, you know, and maybe an assistant. They're on their own in these dangerous situations. I, I talked to this woman last night whose name I'm going to completely forget, and I, she directed the movie called Notes from, the, from a Border, and she was this diminutive little woman who just, you know, said, I don't care, I'm just going to jump in there and do what I do and pretend that I'm just this innocent creature. And, and then Laura Poitras turned to her and said, you got arrested. <laughs> you know? So this, it's exciting. I actually, I, I think there's something really pure about that approach that, that applies to all kinds of filmmaking. I just saw another Laura who's in the festival this year is the director, Laura Israel, who has a documentary about Robert Frank here called Don't Blink, and uh, Frank is just this fascinating force of nature. He's still at it, and he's like 90, 91, something like that after all these years. Impossible to have a real conversation with because he hates interviews, and yet somehow they really do get across the sense that, you know, this isn't somebody who just threw himself out on the street and captured culture in a way that we had never really seen before and yet was still intensely familiar. And I find that really inspiring because that's sort of what I go to the movies for, is a window into a world that I've never really seen in that way before and something that challenges me to think about the world in, in different ways. So I really recommend this movie. I hope it, I hope it sells. It's one of the few in the lineup that doesn't yet have distribution, but I, but I liked it quite a bit. And it's also, I think, one of the few documentaries in the main slate, so I recommend that one. Curious to see whether Michael Moore picks up a little more steam. We keep, every succeeding day, I'm saying, he sold it, he sold it. He sold, it was six million, it was eight million. I don't know who, ha you know, it's Lionsgate, it's Open Road. Whatever it turns out to be, they're going to eventually announce it. Right, because right now it just belongs to the New York Film Festival That's crowd. That's right. It is kind of fascinating, though, because, uh, I, I mean, we, we were talking about this on, on last week's episode a little bit, but you have to wonder, I mean, is a Michael Moore movie the kind of 
you know, hot item than it was, say, a decade ago. When in he was some ways, he was incredibly innovative, and he put himself in front of the camera, and he made himself a personality and a commentator. He had an opinion, and in some ways, he anticipated the kind of bloggy world that we live in, and also places like Vice and you know people that and Morgan Spurlock. Uh, Alex Gibney puts himself more in his films than he did years ago when he first started. Um, so he had, and, and someone like Kirby Dick does the same thing. He had a huge influence, but he doesn't seem quite as, as uh, at the forefront now as he did when he started. In any case, it's a really good movie. I think it's, a, it's, um, it's entertaining in a way that some of his other films are not because it, it invites more people in. And uh, I think that he it has, has bigger learned audience. how to play to the audience. That's mm -hmm. his gift, and that's what he's good at. And he knows how to do that. And I think that audience will come to this movie. There's no question about it. So there, there are actually some other fun movies in the festival this year. We're both big fans of Maggie's Plan, a movie that just recently sold to Sony Pictures Classics. A good home for it, I think. And they're going to release it next year. I love that movie. It's really fun. It's, it's charming, really and sharp. it's a perfect New York movie. I mean, if you could pull it out of that context of some of the other New York comedies we've seen Greta Gerwig in in the last year or two years, something like that, it really does stand on its own. And, and for Rebecca Miller, I think it's like her fifth film or something like that. It's definitely her best work to date. Um, and since no Screen Talk episode would be complete without digging into the Sony Classic slate, perhaps we should talk about another film they have in the lineup. Uh, she looks baffled. Yes, yeah, Son of Saul is screening here soon, and it's the, the film comment uh, pick, and uh, I know we both are big fans of this movie, but what I'm really curious about is how big fans there will be outside of this kind of context. And the movie also showed at the Fantastic Fest over the weekend with a totally different crowd. I think the, tr the tr challenge for Son of Saul, I mean, eventually, I think enough critics will say how important it is and how much people have to see it, but it sounds grim. It sounds like another Holocaust movie. It sounds, it, it's, it's, I, I find myself telling people they have to see it and, and there's resistance, you know? I have, to I have to make them, I have to grab them by the lapels and say, you must see this. And a lot of people are gonna have to do that. It's interesting because talking about something like Spotlight, I mean, this is a movie that's essentially about sexual abuse in the church, but it's got that one degree of remove because you're watching people report on that where this is a movie that puts you into that situation. But I think it does it in, in as you know, bracing kind of an immediate fashion as say it's that climax of the walk. It just again, it has something more to say. So I think the filmmaker does an amazing job of putting you inside the action in a very different way than you've ever been put there before. Yeah, so so I'm I'm really excited to see how that one plays here. What else are we excited about at New York Film Festival? I mean, there must be some other things in this lineup that, that you've seen that you love. She's cracking up, Chip, because I'm putting it all on her. Because I can't think of anything else. All right, I got tons. <laughs> I got a lot for you people. Let me start with one from Romania that I really love called The Treasure. It's uh, Cornelio Poromboya's movie. It was uh, kind of buried at the Cannes Film Festival earlier this year. It's a, a kind of deadpan comedy that I think on some level, uh, <laughs> for listeners at home, Anne just got the schedule from Eugene. Um, very convenient. So The Treasures is actually a really great little discovery here because it's a movie that creeps up on you. If you've ever kind of exposed yourself to what people might call the Romanian New Wave, these are movies that really take their time kind of building up and, and creating a, a certain kind of atmosphere. But what pays off here is that I think there's a certain kind of emotional consistency to it 
um, it builds to a certain point where you're with this character from the start to the finish in a way that has a certain charm. And I didn't expect that from such a rigidly formalist film. And I hope I bought you enough time here. I didn't like that film as much as you did. It, it's one of those movies that seems... Um, What's the term? Um, artfully arcane? It, correct. <laughs> correct. Mad and, Libs Thompson. And, and, it, and it's also just one of those things that feels stretched out. Something It's very witty and sweet. But it goes on and on, you know. There's there's, like there's a minutes. scene where they're 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 uh, digging in in a garden, as I recall. <laughs> but there's payoff. But I will give you another artfully arcane movie that I loved, which is The Assassin from Hu Shaosheng, and I would highly recommend that. It's one of the most beautiful, stunning, gorgeous, cinematographically supreme movies I've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. Ho Shaoshan is in his late 60s, and he's been at this for a really long time, and, it, and it's up there with some of his best work. I mean, I think some people have been resistant to it because it's very pictorial, um, but that's just, that's the experience that you're in for, and uh, it's in some ways as another great example of why you should see a movie on a big screen. I mean, it's designed for that format. Um, it's, there are layers and layers of, of, of gauze and, and colors and, and just the depth of it is extraordinary. So let it just wash over you. So what else did you find in there? <laughs> <laughs> the, the, there's the, uh, the three-part Arabian Nights film directed by Miguel Gomez, which is probably one of the more intriguing viewing challenges that one might encounter in this festival. But what I kind of liked about that was that it, uh, it asks you to go with a lot of different sorts of challenges over the course of three parts. So it's, it's three different movies, but they all kind of speak to each other in a way that I think a very modern audience can relate to because we all watch TV, so we're used to that kind of a endeavor. And, and it's something that we've been talking about, I think, for a long time, which is that every time I encounter a movie that seems like it's too challenging for certain kinds of audiences, I have to wonder if that's just what it looks like from the outside. And I'd love to see a movie like Arabian Nights, which is actually getting a theatrical release from Kino Lorber, kind of open things up for new audiences, for people to find new things in a film like that that's doing stuff that I think it's, it's more accessible than meets the eye. And that's what I get excited about, too. Yeah, and I respond a lot to good writing. And uh, another movie that has extremely good writing is Chevalier, um, which is uh, from the Greek... Uh, new wave that we may be familiar with, with Lorgos Lacrimos, who, who did The Lobster. Um, so this is, tr is really funny, and it is coming from a feminist perspective, and the idea is that these men are on a yacht and they're playing a sort of dick-measuring game, basically. <laughs> and um, it takes Spoiler it alert. to incredible lengths. <laughs> Literally, yeah. No, I, yeah, she does a really good job. I'm surprised. that We actually both saw that movie at the Locarno Film That's Festival. Right. It was a nice discovery, and now, now it's kind of kicking it up to another level because that director, Athena Rachel Tsongari, is the, the filmmaker in residence Thank here you. as well. And, uh, yeah, I really like Chevalier because it's the sort of thing, somebody needs to buy the remake rights for that thing and make a big it studio It would be comedy. hilarious with all the actors in there. It would be hysterical. My ben Affleck and Matt Damon measuring each other's dicks. I love Forget it. it. <laughs> Seth Rogen's coming here for Steve Jobs. Get him to go check that thing out. He'll be all over it. So maybe we should uh, open it up to audience questions. I know there's tons here that you guys want to challenge us about or maybe just have some comments or other movies you've liked. We're open to whatever, and I think we have a, a microphone that Eugene's brandishing. So, in fact, we have multiple microphones. So if somebody has a question, by all means, 
shoot your hand in the air. And uh, there's one up front. Um, I don't know about this year, but do you think horror is going to become a bigger force uh, in film and be more respected? Two words, The Witch. It's a movie directed by Robert Eggers, which won Best Director at Sundance this year, and uh, A24 is releasing it early next year. I would have loved to see it at this festival. I think there's, a, there's one sort of gap in this year's lineup. It's the lack of genre films, um, which, again, I mean, I, I mentioned Fantastic Fest earlier. It's a terrific showcase for how that kind of filmmaking sensibility is still you know, in a very rich stage. But The Witch is great because of the way in which it creates a, a period piece in which the horror comes from the inside. It doesn't, it doesn't force you to, to kind of go along with it. It puts you in this world and you completely believe that you're in this you know, New England environment in the 1600s and then something really terrifying and supernatural happens. And uh, to go into more details, maybe it would be a spoiler, but, it, but it's, it's really quite something. I loved this movie. And one of the things I like about it is there's elements of dreamscape and mystery and you don't know exactly what's going to happen. It is utterly unpredictable and that is a rare thing in movies these days. It has style. And so that director is already working on another movie I've heard along similar lines called The Night and I, my hope is that filmmakers would see a movie like this and be inspired to take this kind of measured approach because in a lot of ways, genre film, especially now, can be easily dumped into the VOD market, which means it can be profitable, which means there's less pressure on people to make really great horror movies. And I think that, you know, a couple years ago, maybe we, we saw, like, a lot of studio horror, like the whole torture porn phenomenon, if you are okay with that term. And it, it kind of peered off for good reasons. And there's a gap now. I think there's a real possibility for, for horror filmmakers to bring their air game. I'm a big fan of Crimson Peak, uh, the new Guillermo del Toro, which I'm worried about a little bit because it is an art film and a horror film, and it's really smart, and it's a romance, and it's a gothic romance. And so you have the haunted house, and you have the evil sister and all this sort of thing going on, and it's it could be something that doesn't play for that horror crowd. I'm really, it's so beautifully made, so exquisitely wrought. It and it's a studio movie, which is universal. rare to see something from that. And, it, and it, you know, it's like the best costumes, the best production design of just about any movie I've seen this year. And that movie was snuck over the weekend in Austin where I, I heard that it played really well, but it's still under embargo that you keep breaking. Sorry, somebody's got to like this movie so and get people to come see yeah, it. The campaign starts now. Do we have other questions from the audience? Um, a couple of years ago, um, I discovered Hong Sung Soo at this film festival. Um, and so I was curious about his new film, which I'm excited to see uh, right now, Wrong Then. And so it's yeah, I wonderful. remember you, you approached me at an event before and you were really excited about it. This guy says it's like the number one Hong Sang Soo fan in New York, which is great. Somebody has to. It's really good. And again, it's very witty and well written and, and well wrought. I, I, I've, I discovered him with this film. I am not a, have not seen his other work. So this was ex a, a discovery for me. Yeah, I mean, it, it takes a while to kind of get through the Hong Sang Soo Uva because he cranks them out like you do. I mean, he's sort of, he's, he's not quite as prolific as Joe Swanger, but he's been around longer, and I think the, the quality is more consistent, so when people start to discover Hong Sang Soo more, this would be a good starting point because it has a certain structural trickery to it that's kind of fun and accessible, and a lot of movies that he's done do that, 
But this one is, is I think, one of the better examples. It takes a real uh, risk in sort of repeating material and totally pulls it off. So who else wants to ask a stuff? about um, men's performances for the uh, Oscars coming up other than Steve Jobs? Is there anything that you guys are really, you know, that stands out to you guys? Well, I would say Michael Caine from Youth could be a real factor. Um, that's a real likelihood. Um, I am, uh, <laughs> what do you think? Well, it's interesting because Youth is a movie, it's not here, it divided people, but he's, he's great in it. And he's been around a really long time, and I'd love to see him kind of get his due for a movie like that because it, it really does showcase what's so great about Michael Caine as an actor. All the great actors in Spotlight are going for supporting, so so they that sort of opens up the field. And someone like Ian McKellen for Mr. Holmes is, is, a, is you know, given the Academy and how they tend to think about things, he's a good likely candidate. But don't forget about Matt Damon. Again, I mean, is there well, the Martian is totally in there as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, I mean, I would say, I mean, at this point, Mike, Michael Fassbender is it's sort of a slam dunk. I mean, of yeah. all the things you can take issue with in that movie, if you do, I would say he's the front bad. runner. He's definitely the front runner. But it, but it's an interesting question because it is uh, sort of a what's weird field. is that the best actor category is usually the most crowded, and this year it's the supporting actor category because they're all playing games with it. They're saying, "Oh, Paul Dano's supporting," and you know, so forth. So it's it, it's they're 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 messing around, and they're going to regret it. I think it's a confusing time. Just want to make sure the mic works because we're recording. In The Martian, um, the preview that I've seen, it just makes Matt Damon look really smug. But you said he. <laughs> It looks really well written, or you said it's really well written, so. He's charming. He's actually charming. He's under duress, okay. you know, and he's talking to the camera, and he's trying to, you know, figure out his situation and trying to communicate. Uh, it, it, there are all sorts of obstacles thrown in his way, and he has to be really clever to figure out how to survive. Yeah, I think you sort of, you do root for him. He's credibly smug. I mean, there is a smug element to the way he relates to NASA, but it's coming from a real place. Well, he's trying to buck himself up. At some point, he says, I'm the greatest botanist who ever lived. Uh, maybe you're <laughs> responding to that. But it's a good thing he is, or he wouldn't make it. <laughs> who else wants Anyone to else? Yeah. Uh, just to piggyback off of his statement, <laughs> um, I just saw something today about Don Cheadle's role in uh, Miles Davis. Have you heard or seen anything about that? So Miles Ahead is the closing night film, and it's a really unusual situation where the people who were selling it, it was an independent film and his first feature, they did not have a distributor when they booked the New York Film Festival, and they increased the value of the movie incredibly by getting that additional credibility from, from booking it at the New York Film Festival, and then they showed it to Sony Pictures Classics, and then they sold it and, and got the deal. But they're not going to show it until 2016. They're not going to release it. So it's not going to be in the Oscar race this year. And neither will Maggie's plan, because they're both Well, but later. I mean, if, if, if Miles Ahead plays through the roof here, I mean, could they change their strategy? They insist not. Well, and, and we take their word as gospel well, in screen time. they have so. a lot of stuff. They have a lot of movies that they're releasing. And, and so their philosophy, as they explain it to me, you know, as it's been explained to me, is that it's basically a better time to release it in the spring and put it into next year's Oscar race. 
Yeah, but I'm, I'm very curious about that movie. I mean, it's something that I don't think any of us were really talking about until it was booked for that closing night. So it's it a real surprise, yeah. Um, I was really interested in what you were saying about Arabian Nights. Um, Miguel Gomez has been a really interesting force in cinema lately, and um, I think he's... I haven't seen Arabian Nights, but in Taboo and Our Beloved Month of August, I noticed that he really does push the medium of film in this really interesting direction, but in a way that's not too harsh on the viewer. Um, and I wonder if you, if either of you have anything to say about other films that are doing that in maybe not so much of an artfully arcane way. Um, it's gonna come back to haunt me, I can see that. <laughs> the, the name of your next book, maybe? Um, it's a yeah, really no great one will question. read it. <laughs> It's a great question. I would say Son of Saul actually does that in certain ways. I mean, there, there are things about the formalism of this movie that are, that are challenging, it, not, not just because it's shot in the Academy Ratio in 35mm, but mostly in close-up, um, in implying certain things that you wouldn't necessarily know from the outset unless you knew all these details about kind of the geography of Auschwitz. But it brings you into this really dynamic world in a way that I think is exciting from an intellectual standpoint as much as it is sort of immediate. So, and that's a that's a first film from a director who I think is going to have a really interesting career. I love The Lobster um, as a movie that sort of pushes the edges of what's believable and, you know, puts you in an... It, what he does is he consistently, and it's the writing, with and working with these actors who were good enough to pull it off, of creating this absolutely uh, impossible-to-imagine world with different rules and different... Uh, possibilities and making it believable and consistent and and you you just enter that world and uh, uh, who knows what's going to happen and it's hilarious. Yeah, Yorgos Lanthimos is actually a great example of a filmmaker who's been kind of doing that in, in various different ways. I mean, I surprising you all the time. Yeah, I mean, I remember Dogtooth was a movie that, that kind of came out of nowhere unless you'd seen his first film, which most people hadn't. And uh, even though it makes you really uncomfortable. And it's it's got this sort of like twisted narrative strategy. It's a very accessible kind of dystopian it's portrait. It's the lobster. Yeah. And he, and he pulls off English, which not everybody does. Uh, when uh, <laughs> never mind. Well, I'll give you one more example. Who's not in the festival this year, but he was last year, who's, uh, which is uh, Pedro Costa. Uh, his last movie, Horse Money, is one of my favorite of the years. Um, his, his movies are these gorgeous kind of like tone poems about mostly an underclass uh, community in uh, Portugal. But uh, I think you could show these movies on a, on a, to any number of different kinds of people and they would understand that they're saying something about the world in a way that also reaches beyond their understanding of it. Um, but it's at the same time, it's it's not... It's not arcane. I mean, it's not it's not holding you at arm's length and saying, "Here's some pretty images." I think that there's a, an emotional clarity to to what Pedro Costa does that uh, really speaks to the kind of autonomy he's maintained as a filmmaker as well. That's a great question, by the way. We should be asking that every week. Any other questions? Yeah. Okay. The, the movie that I, I'm most excited in seeing this year, and I'm not, I'm not sure if it is in the film festival here, is The Danish Girl with Eddie Redmayne. And I'm curious if that is in the festival here, and if you've seen it and what you think about it. It's not here probably because the selection committee didn't like it, and I would have to say, personally, I agree with that. But uh, I like the Danish girl somewhat better than Eric does. At the same time, that I grant that it's not an entirely successful movie. 
Um, and I'm, I, I, will sh I, will, I would say that uh, there was a, the, 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 it's one of these things where you feel something going on under the surface and they're, 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 it's beautifully wrought and uh, Eddie Redmayne is, is remarkable and beautiful and you feel for him and, and all the troubles that he's going through and for Alicia Vikander, uh, the actors are superb and I suspect they will, they will be rewarded for their performances. But uh, the question is whether audiences are going to actually respond to this story. That's now, one person sat next to me and wept tears at the end of the movie. Nigel, hello. <laughs> oh, you just outed him. <laughs> In more ways than one. Yes. Now, go ahead. No, so that, you hated it, but. I, I found it to be very dreary in certain ways that were quite presumptuous. But again, I mean, if you're excited to see that movie, I would assume maybe you've liked Tom Hooper's Make movies. Make up your own I mean, mind. You know, I, uh, yeah, exactly. Who knows? I could be completely off base here. I also found the, the star elements of the movie very distracting. There's a lot of emphasis being placed on what Eddie Redmayne is doing in this movie. I would much rather people check out, say, Tangerine, which is a movie that deals with actual transgender performance in a, in a story that works, I think, much better. Not that they have anything to do with each other narrative-wise, except for that point. I loved Tangerine, and I totally recommend it, and everyone should see it, not only for that, but because it's such a good iPhone movie, but, uh, which I love. But, but in this case, I would say that what happens is that you get this sense that the filmmakers and the studio are, are trying to make an accessible movie that audiences will like. It's, it's as if they're a little afraid of it. It's as if they're, they're tiptoeing around some of the subject matter. I mean, one thing I think is interesting about the context of that movie is that you can see our culture kind of evolving or stretching to try to address these ideas or these stories that for a long time were either thought of as unapproachable or maybe sort of cha too challenging for an actor to take on at a certain point in their career, and Redmayne is certainly well-situated to, to push those boundaries. So I'm all about the, the progressive nature of this movie being a part of the conversation. I just wish it was a much better example of that. So do we have any other questions? Huge. We can squeeze in one or I two have one, more. I have one. We're just okay. about wrapping up. But um, Well, observation, then question, real quick, if you'll, if you'll pardon me. Um, well, first of all, I, I was just sitting here proudly thinking and noticing that we have a little bit of an IndieWire reunion, which made me very happy for a moment, with you guys from IndieWire, Jason Gonzalez, who's from IndieWire, Brian Brooks, who's now at Deadline, and the Film Society, Nigel Smith, who's now at The Guardian. Um, so there's a certain uh, previous generation of IndieWire. Makes me happy, too. Uh, and knowing that IndieWire is turning 20 years next year. Um, and you're all sitting up front, too. Yeah, we're all sitting up front. IndieWire um, like comes meetings. from Eugene and Brian. They did this. Well, my question relates to that, actually, um, because Eric and I um, have spent with Brian, um, we spent a good part of last week working with the Critics Academy, which is a partnership between IndieWire and the Film Society and Film Comment. Um, and my question is really about the state of journalism, because I think that uh, Eric and I haven't talked about this yet, so I'm putting you on the spot, but yes. I, we had some really good workshops last week, private off-the-record workshops with a bunch of different folks, journalists, editors, people from the industry. Um, and I wonder, Eric specifically, but maybe Anne and Eric, as you're thinking about, like, where is journalism now? And I thought it would be an interesting element to add to this conversation because the festival is also about film culture. It's about, you know, a history. And where are we now with sort of the future of journalism and how it influences film culture, influences the kinds of movies that you guys are talking about that we show at the festival? The fact that so many people would come out and sit and 
listen and engage in a conversation just about movies with other fellow you know, cinephiles to me is really exciting, but I wonder if your experience, the last few festivals you've been to and thinking about where journalism going, is going and Eric also, the kind of en uh, encounters we had last week with young critics and the industry, what, what you're thinking about. Well, the short answer I would give is that I am very aware of how many people I talk to and see at festivals who love movies and who write about movies for a living and there's a lot of them and they're pure and they're, they're happy to, to, to be doing it. On the other hand, there's a lot of compromise and poverty and <laughs> traffic chasing um, and those drivers are very dangerous. It's funny, th in the middle of running this workshop with these guys here at the Film Society, I also teach a class in film criticism at NYU, and the first thing I do at the beginning of that class is I ask people who their favorite film critics are, and I've been hearing people say things like TV critics they listen to or Twitter feeds they like, and you can argue that this isn't a clear-cut business model for the future of film criticism, but for the diversification of conversations about film culture, it's never been more complex. And you know, for every guest that we had at the Critics Academy this week, one person would say something really optimistic about the state of, of this kind of work and, and these kinds of conversations that we have because we love movies and we want to play a role in, in the culture. And then somebody else would shoot it down and say that you know, it's in crisis. But one thing is clear is that there, there are more movies being made than ever before. And if you look at your Twitter feeds or however you follow these conversations, everybody's talking about them. So whether or not there's a business model to sustain this kind of stuff, I don't know. Everything's always in flux. But it does seem like there's, there are greater conversations happening than ever before. But there is another culture, which is the culture of do what your friends do. And I went to uh, a class at Emerson College and went around the room. I always poll people. I'm always curious to see who do they read, what do they, where do they get their information. They look at trailers and they ask their friends what they're seeing. And they read stuff, you know, they just glean it in some kind of weird way. But they don't read anything. They do listen to podcasts though, right? Hopefully. <laughs> well, on that optimistic note. Thank you. <laughs> thanks Bye for being all. here. Can I take a photo of everybody sitting here looking at us? I never know if I'll have the chance. To